Today is Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Forty states settled Google's location tracking charges for $392 million. Search giant Google has agreed to a $391.5 million settlement with 40 states to resolve an investigation into how the company tracked users' locations, state attorneys general announced this week. The state's investigation was sparked by a 2018 Associated Press story, which found that Google continued to track people's location data even after they opted out of such tracking by disabling a feature in the company called Location History. The attorneys general called the settlement a historic win for consumers and the largest multi-state settlement in U.S. history by dealing with privacy. It comes at a time of mounting unease over privacy and surveillance by tech companies that has drawn growing outrage from politicians and scrutiny from regulators. The $391.5 million settlement is a historic win for consumers in an era of increasing reliance on technology. Connecticut Attorney General William Tong said in a statement, Location data is among the most sensitive and valuable personal information. Google collects and there are so many reasons why a consumer may opt out of tracking. At a news conference, Tong urged consumers to do a little personal inventory of their online settings and turn them off if they don't want them. It's not an exaggeration to say that we live in a surveillance economy, he said. Understand that you're being tracked every minute of every day where you are. Google, based in Mountain View, California, said it fixed the problem several years ago. Consistent with improvements we've made in recent years, we have settled this investigation, which was based on outdated product policies that we changed years ago, company spokesman Jose Castaneda said. Location tracking can help tech companies sell digital ads to marketers looking to connect with consumers within their vicinity. It's another tool in data gathering toolkit that generates more than $200 billion in annual ad revenue for Google, accounting for most of the profits poured into the coffers of its corporate parent, Alphabet, which has a market value of $1.2 trillion. In its 2018 story, the Associated Press reported that many Google services on Android devices and iPhones store users' location data even if they used a privacy setting that says it will prevent Google from doing so. Computer science researchers at Princeton confirmed these findings at the Associated Press request. Storing such data carries privacy risk 
and has been used by police to determine the location of suspects. The Associated Press reported that the privacy issue with location tracking affected some 2 billion users of devices that run Google's Android operating software and hundreds of millions of worldwide iPhone users who rely on Google for maps or search. The attorneys general who investigated Google said a key part of the company's digital advertising business is location data, which they call the most sensitive and valuable personal data the company collects. Even a small amount of location data can reveal a person's identity and routines, they said. Google uses the location information to target consumers with ads by its customers, the state official said. The attorneys general said Google misled users about its location tracking practices since at least 2014, violating state consumer protection laws. As part of the settlement, Google also agreed to make those practices more transparent to users. That includes showing them more information when they turn location account settings on and off and keeping a web page that gives users information about the data Google collects. The shadowy surveillance brought to light by the Associated Press troubled even some Google engineers who recognized the company might be confronting a huge legal headache after the story was published. According to internal documents that have subsequently surfaced in consumer fraud lawsuits, Tong, the Connecticut AG, thanked the AP for its story, which he said, set the table for the investigation by the states and helped expose the tracking practices. He said a new Connecticut consumer privacy law set to take effect next year will require that people opt into any location tracking and not have to turn it off. Arizona Attorney General Mark Branovich filed the first state action against Google in May of 2020, alleging that the company had defrauded its users by misleading them into believing that they could keep their whereabouts private by turning off location tracking in the settings of their software. Arizona settles its case with Google for $85 million last month. But by then, attorneys general in several other states and the District of Columbia had also pounced on the company with their own lawsuits seeking to hold Google accountable for its alleged deception. For Google, $392 million is loose change. Google's daily revenue is $495 million. Gmail adding package tracking feature ahead of the holiday shopping. The Gmail feature will alert users of order status, inflation-busting deals to get ahead on holiday shopping. The holiday season is approaching, and Gmail aims to help U.S. shoppers with new tracking features. Google said users can see a simple view of packing and tracking delivery information in their inbox. For orders with tracking numbers, Gmail will display the delivery status in the inbox view list and in a summary card at the top of individual emails. Package tracking will be available across most major U.S. shipping carriers, providing details including estimated arrival data and status. People can opt in to receive tracking updates from their inbox or in Gmail settings. Package tracking will provide important details at a glance, such as estimated arrival date and status, like label created, arriving tomorrow, or delivered today.
Gmail will automatically look up order status using tracking numbers and surface them in the inbox. Users can opt out at any time through settings. The changes, Google said, are to help people save time. It can be a hassle if you're trying to find an email with a tracking number, for example, because you're expecting a package. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if your inbox let you keep track of the packages without you having to search through hundreds of emails? We also know how it feels to be waiting on a package only to discover it was delayed. In the coming months, Gmail will help eliminate some of that surprise. It will proactively show a delay label and bring the email to the top of your inbox so you don't miss a beat or a package. Google said, noting that there would be new features to come in Gmail. Well, now Google has added exactly that. Google says that over the next few weeks, it's adding the ability to track your packages directly from your inbox. If Gmail detects that an email includes a tracking number, it will show a label on the message in your inbox that lets you know when to expect your delivery. In addition, Gmail will let you know when a package has shipped and if it gets delayed. Google will surface the email and let you know if you ever change your plans in order to be home when a package was supposed to arrive, you know how frustrating it can be to find out that delivery has been delayed for some reason. Google says the feature works with most major U.S. shipping carriers. It seems safe to assume that this means FedEx, UPS, and USPS, or the United States Postal Service. Google did not say whether it will work with Amazon's Prime Delivery Service, though. This itself is not a new idea. In fact, there are several email apps that just do this already. In some ways, it's a more useful feature in an email app since it works with any email address, not just Gmail. Also, I imagine there are some people who would prefer Google not to be looking into their emails for tracking numbers to know where they've been shopping. The feature is an opt-in option, meaning you'll be able to decide whether you want Gmail looking for tracking numbers in your email. Of all the ways your data is tracked online, including every time you use one of Google's websites or services. That's at least in part because the more value a feature adds to your life, the more it's worth letting Google know you're expecting a package. As we approach the holidays, the idea that your inbox will simply let you know that a package is on the way and when you can expect it to be delivered seems especially useful. This does seem like the type of feature that Gmail should have had all along. If you're already indexing the contents of my inbox so that I can search, it doesn't seem all that hard to train your machine learning to surface tracking numbers. It's sort of the low-hanging fruit that adds a lot more value to the user than the effort it takes to implement it. Google can't make your packages show up on time for the holidays, though. But at least it can make it easier to keep track of them along the way. And I have a final editorial comment. This is a free feature. And, of course, you can assume that Google is not going to package this tracking information that you have provided into the profile that they already have on you. Because Big Brother cares about your privacy. Talking about privacy settings, Apple was sued for allegedly deceiving users with privacy settings. Researchers found that Apple collects iPhone data 
even when the company's own iPhone analytics setting explicitly promises not to. Apple is facing a class action lawsuit for allegedly harvesting iPhone user data even when the company's own privacy settings promise not to. The suit filed Thursday in California federal court comes days after Gizmodo exclusively reported on research into how multiple iPhone apps send Apple analytics data regardless of whether the iPhone analytics privacy setting is turned on or off. The problem was spotted by two independent researchers at the software company MISC, that's M-Y-S-K, who found that Apple App Store sends the company exhaustive information about nearly everything a user does in the app, despite a privacy setting. iPhone Analytics, which claims to disable the sharing of device analytics altogether, when switched off. Gizmodo asked the researchers to run additional tests on other iPhone apps, including Apple Music, Apple TV, Books, and Stocks. The researchers found that the problem persists across most of Apple's suite of built-in iPhone apps. The lawsuit accuses Apple of violating the California Invasion of Privacy Act. Privacy is one of the main issues that Apple uses to set its products apart from competitors. But Apple's privacy guarantees are completely illusionary. The company has plastered billboards across the country with the slogan, Privacy, that's iPhone. Apple did not immediately respond to any request for comment. As seen in a video posted to the MISC YouTube channel, that's M-Y-S-K YouTube channel, the App Store appears to harvest information about your activity in real time, including what you tap on, which apps you search for, what ads you see, and how you found a given app and how long you look at the app's page. Apple's privacy settings make explicit promises about shut off that kind of tracking, but in the test, turning the iPhone analytics setting off had no evident effect on the data collection nor did any of the iPhone's other built-in settings meant to protect your privacy from Apple's data collection. MISC tests on the App Store found that Apple receives that data along with details that can identify you and your device, including ID numbers, what kind of phone you're using, your screen resolution, your keyboard languages, and how you're connected to the Internet, the kind of information commonly used for device fingerprinting. When the researchers looked at other iPhone apps at Gizmodo's request, they found that many behaved similarly. While the health and wallet apps didn't collect analytics data, Apple Music, Apple TV, Books, the iTunes stores, and Stocks all did. The Stocks app shared data including your list of watch stocks, the names of stocks you view or search for, and timestamps for when you did it, as well as a record of any news articles you saw in the app. The level of detail is shocking for a company like Apple. Tommy Misk previously told Gizmodo, This data can be sensitive, especially when you consider that merely searching for apps related to topics such as religion, LGBTQ issues, health, and addiction reveal details about a person's life. Through its pervasive and unlawful data tracking and collection business, Apple knows even the most intimate 
and potentially embarrassing aspects of the user's app storage. Regardless of whether the user accepts Apple's illusionary offer to keep such activities private, the lawsuit said. Apple is under increased scrutiny for its privacy practices as the company expands into digital advertising. Apple recently introduced new ads in the App Store, reportedly plans to ads to Apple TV, and seems focused on poaching small business advertisers from Meta, Facebook's parent company. While Apple's company literature loudly declares that privacy is a human right, it remains to be seen how much the iPhone manufacturer is willing to compromise that right as it develops new data-driven business ventures. Avoid using blue mailboxes during the holidays. The United States Postal Service warns. They are convenient, but may not be the safest way to send holiday mail. Whether you're sending holiday cards or gifts, or just mailing your monthly rent check, you may want to avoid using those large blue collection boxes, at least for the next few months. The United States Postal Service's officials have advised. Not only have reports of mail fraud and theft been on the rise year-round, the crimes tend to peak during the holiday season, and those blue mailboxes are becoming more frequent targets. Why you should avoid blue mailboxes during the holiday season? According to USPS officials, groups of criminals across the country are using the internet and social media to coordinate strategic targeting of post office collection boxes. If you do opt to use the blue collection boxes, be sure to do so before the last collection of the day so your mail isn't sitting in there overnight. The time should be listed on the front of the box. This is especially true on Saturday, as the mail would be in there overnight plus all of Sunday. How to safely send and receive mail this holiday season? Well, in addition to avoiding the blue collection boxes, there are a few other tips from experts at the United States Postal Service to help ensure your mail ends up in the right hands. One of the best things that you can do is hand it off directly to your postal carrier. Obviously, then it's already in their hands and it's into the system. The other option would be to take it directly into the post office. They add that obviously it would have to be during regular business hours, but that's the most secure way to protect your mail. Never send cash in the mail. If it's stolen, consider it gone. If you expect to receive something of value in the mail, let the sender know when and if you're to receive it. Similarly, if you're sending someone something valuable, partially, it will partially ruin the surprise to let them know that a package is on its way. You could sign up for the United States Postal Service informed delivery so you know when your mail is arriving. The International Space Station gets new delivery with a 3D printer. The International Space Station received a new delivery this week, a package with over 8,200 pounds of supplies. The rocket for the resupply mission took off from NASA's Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia on Monday, bringing a whole host of items for future experiments, including a 3D printer, seeds for space-grown plants, and even ovarian cow cells. The seeds will help scientists assess how plants adapt in space 
and which ones are best suited for the celestial environment, according to a NASA press release. The cow cells, meanwhile, are for research on fertility treatment back on Earth. NASA said this is a very exciting time for research on the International Space Station. NASA's Associate Program Scientist for the Space Station said ahead of the launch, according to Space.com, that every new vehicle that launches is bringing up not only new research, but also new capabilities. NASA said this is a very exciting time for research on the International Space Station. NASA's Associate Program Scientist for the Space Station said ahead of the launch, according to Space.com, that every new vehicle that launches is bringing up not only new research, but also new capabilities. As reported, the International Space Station received a new delivery this week, a package with over 8,200 pounds of supplies. In that package was a 3D printer. I thought about that. How does a 3D printer work in zero gravity? Astronauts on the International Space Station need cargo to sustain their missions. And they depend on cargo transported via rocket ships to send supplies and tools. However, it sometimes takes weeks or even months for critical supplies to reach them. As humans venture further into space, these cargo missions will become even more expensive and complex. However, that's where zero-gravity printing comes in, otherwise known as 3D printing in space, can make its impact. The dependence upon cargo resupply has afforded the space industry opportunities to choose alternate options for spacecraft supplies. Additive manufacturing is a way of printing 3D parts from a digital machine. For comparison, consider the common office printer. A 2D file prints images and text on paper, while a 3D printer uses a 3D file to distribute thin layers of material on top of the other, creating a fully formed 3D model. The 3D print test demonstrated on the International Space Station was a major step toward making a zero-gravity 3D printing a reality for long-duration space missions. This will be a significant component for sustainable deep space human exploration of far-off celestial bodies like the Moon or Mars, where there is limited availability of Earth-based materials and logistics support. To prepare for implementing this revolutionary technology in space, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center and the company Made in Space teamed up to develop and launch the first 3D experiment on the International Space Station using extrusion additive manufacturing. The first 3D printer in space created objects layer by layer out of, and I'm going to mangle this, acrylon nitrile, butadiene styrene, or otherwise known as ABS plastic, which we know today as Lego, which is the same material to make Lego bricks. Over 20 parts are printed on the innovation as files are loaded onto the printer with additional files uplinked from Earth. Printing in space, how does it work? The shoebox size printer uses a fused filament fabrication process that feeds a continuous thread of plastic through a heated extruder and onto a tray layer by layer to form the three-dimensional object. It's encased in metal 
with a glass window so astronauts who use it can look into the printing process. When NASA Made in Space 3D printing in Zero Gravity Project was being tested, researchers found that zero gravity had no difference on printing 3D objects as compared to being printed on Earth. However, there were some noticeable differences to printing in space. One of the investigators on the research project explained, there were some differences in the flight and ground specimen sets, which are likely attributable to the inherent variability in subsequent builds common with additive manufacturing processes. As with any process, it is important to have process control. The idea with the technology demonstration was to show that you can do this in microgravity, and the only way to test that was operating over time on the station. Made in Space then created the additive manufacturing facility called AMF to print a variety of materials, including engineered plastics. A later investigation created parts with this new printer on the ISS. They printed hundreds of objects that are currently undergoing analysis. However, they took a different testing approach to examine the filament layup on objects and its consistency. One challenge is that there are no firm standards to test 3D printed materials. However, organizations and agencies like NASA are working to advance testing procedures. Thankfully, the process can further lead to increased savings, reduction in mass and labor, along with production time. The ISS crew will be able to use the AMF to perform station maintenance, build new tools, and repair outdated sections of the ISS in an emergency, plus the AMF is capable of producing components from a variety of space-rated composites. This diversity of the products allow for various parts and devices to be tailored to the specific need, enabling current and future space mission applications. By 2026, private space 3D printing is expected to reach $2.1 billion as the space sector embraces additive manufacturing to enhance and optimize space parts to reduce costs and weight. What was seen as pure science fiction just 10 years ago is rapidly innovating and making a difference to our future in space. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about, yes, IT and the workplace and all kinds of different things that are happening in the world. And sometimes I stray a little bit further from IT and sometimes a little bit closer. One of the things that I noticed recently uh, as I went through an interesting transition in jobs, I put my I put my LinkedIn out so that, yes, people could see that I was looking for a position. Well, it was I moved it from I'm not going to talk to anybody to, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say. And when I did that, I was bombarded by people interested in my particular background, my particular field of specialty in IT. And then I found out just after I put, took a new position that there was something else. There was an interesting factor that it was occurring 
not just in IT, but throughout the entire work world. That is something called labor hoarding. What does that mean? Well, we have to start by going back through some of the numbers of the past. We have to back up just a little bit. Over the course of the last, well, we'll say the last decade, in any particular given month, there were just shy of 2 million layoffs and discharges. We're talking any given month might be somewhere around 1.8 to 2 million layoffs and firings. And then we move forward to COVID. And between March and April 2020, there were over 22 million layoffs. Let me let me <laughs> let me rephrase this just a little bit. Each month because because they kind of merge together, instead of doing 2 million or just under 2 million a month, it went to 11 million a month in just a very short period of time. And then it stabilized. And for the last uh, for the last year or so, it stabilized at about 1.5 million layoffs or discharges every month. All of a sudden, employers realized, whoa, we overreacted. Yes, we did a number of layoffs, but we really need to hang on to the good people. We need to figure out who the good people are, who who's valuable to us. And they realized that they're also having a hard time regaining employees. Some people in that 22 million said, you know what? I don't need to be part of that workplace anymore. I'll take early retirement. Some people said, you know what? I have a readjustment in my expectations of, of, of what work is. They were spoiled by being with family. They said, you know, I'll take a lesser job. I'll, I'll do something different. I'll, I'll strike out on my own and try to make money as an independent person. And there were a lot of these different things that happened all of a sudden. And a lot of these things collided. So now employers, not, and not by any great expanse, they're saying, we'll hold on to employees a little bit longer. We will do our best because natural attrition, people going on out and finding new jobs, will happen. Are we going to get rid of the chaff? Are we going to separate the wheat from the chaff and get rid of all of this nonsense stuff over here? Yes. And that kind of accounts for that 1.5 million layoffs and discharges every month. So a lot of companies are hanging on to their employees, even uh, even if they are just standard this, of course, ties into a lot of the quiet quitting where people are saying, no, I'm not going to go that extra distance. And it's feeding upon itself because employers are saying, you know what, that's OK. We pay you to do X. We pay you to do Y and everything else is above and beyond. Now, there's no actual you know, hard and fast item that says, hey, we're definitely doing labor hoarding. But a year worth of, of reduced amounts, 
says that employees are being more valued than ever before. Employees are going through and they're being kept, even in situations where the company may say, I don't have 40 hours. of I've got 38 hours of work for you. Your salary, you know, we're going to recognize that work-life balance. A lot of companies have gone forward and set up a whole new set of work-life balance because, yes, even at the top of the structure, the CEOs, the the various vice presidents and various managerial authorities have said, you know what, I actually dig having a work-life balance and I'm going to give that to my employees. Now, is this going to hold on forever? Is this going to continue being the case? We don't know. We can't predict this. There are some that are saying, yeah, this will survive through the next downturn. Even as inflation is going up, they're saying this might actually be a cool thing. We may have a situation where, yes, we have inflation, but people are still retaining their jobs because of this hoarding of not only the best employees, but most of the employees. I wonder how that's going to play out in the future. We'll just wait and see. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Big tech sweeping layoffs. According to the New York Times... Amazon reportedly plans to cut approximately 10,000 corporate employees, with staff at its consumer-facing devices division among those who are likely to be affected by the move. Amazon employs approximately 1.5 million people globally. If the company moves forward, with the cuts as reported, they would affect about 3% of its corporate workforce and would represent the largest reorganization in Amazon's nearly 30-year history. Mass layoffs have a frequent occurrence in the U.S. tech sector in recent weeks. On November 9th, Facebook parent company Meta cut about 13% of its workforce, a move that saw more than 11,000 people lose their jobs at the social media giant. Before that, Twitter was decimated after Elon Musk ordered a 50% reduction of the company's headcount. Over the weekend, the company also let go of most of its contract workers. Smaller firms like Lyft and Snap have laid off employees in recent months as well. For Amazon, the planned layoffs are reflective of the company's changing fortunes. Thanks to early pandemic lockdown measures, the retail giant experienced record growth and went on a hiring spree that saw its workforce double in recent months. However, the company has seen growth slow due to a combination of mounting costs and return of in-person shopping. The company recently posted a $2 billion loss and froze hiring at its corporate offices. Economists and other market experts caution that it's too early to know whether recent layoffs portend a broader slowdown in the tech industry, which as recently as September was adding thousands of jobs a month in release state data. Many of the recently announced layoffs won't show up in state employment data for several months. A hiring slowdown by big tech could be good news 
for some smaller tech firms that have struggled to compete for tech talent in a labor market that remains extremely tight. The current layoffs have grabbed a lot of attention because they're at companies that you traditionally associate with a bellwether of the tech industry. The tech industry has expanded far beyond those tech giants. As painful as layoffs can be for individuals, it does make available some talent back in the market because the demand is still so high. So far, the opportunities are coming from small to mid-sized companies instead of big tech. While there are still many openings for engineering, security, networking, and cloud computing jobs, employers may not feel the need to make the kind of ludicrous compensation offers they did in previous years. Employers may also feel less pressure to allow so much remote work. Hiring could stop or slow entirely at local tech startups, in part as their investors pull back. For tech workers themselves, it all adds up to a lot of uncertainty. The great remorse takes over the great resignation. As most workers who quit their jobs are having a hard time finding a new one. Over 70% of job seekers say it has been harder than they hoped to lock down a good job. The latest workers to join the great resignation aren't having as easy a time finding a new job as they thought it would be, as it's leading to the great remorse. A new Harris poll, at first reported by Bloomberg, surveyed over 2,000 U.S. job seekers' recent experiences with the labor market. Over 70% of them said it has been harder than they hoped to lock down a good job. It's a confusing market for everyone. Among workers who intend to stay in their current role, nearly two-thirds told Harris Poll it's because they genuinely enjoy the work they're doing and have no desire to leave. One-fifth of those workers admit they're not working their dream job, but the pay and benefits are too good to give up, and the remaining 17% said they ideally like to switch jobs, but in an uncertain economy and looming recession, they don't want to risk the financial security of staying out. While businesses report robust hiring increases last month, unemployment is slowly creeping back up. Just look at the rash of layoffs, some numbering in the tens of thousands at companies like Meta, Peloton, Twitter, and Lyft. These unstable conditions may come as a shock to the millions of workers who last year had become accustomed to having their firm upper hand. Nearly three quarters, or 72% of the workers on the job hunt, Harris Poll found, believe hiring managers are dropping the ball, often ignoring their application submissions or failing to schedule interviews. As a result, about two-thirds of those job seekers express regret over failing to begin their search sooner. About the same amount said they imagined their plight would have been easier last year or in 2020. Over 60% of the seekers say the search has dragged on for over six months, and many say they've applied to more than 50 jobs. The frustrations and the slog of the job search has led over half or 51% of seekers to agree that, as it stands, they would take any job offer that comes along. That's one more sign that the great resignation might finally, after nearly two years, be cooling off. But things haven't been looking up for job seekers for some time now. A July report from Joblist found 
that a quarter of workers who quit during the pandemic have come to regret it. As a March 2022 Harris poll found that over a third of respondents who regretted quitting said that in their new role, their work-life balance had declined. Their new job was different than what they were led to expect, and they actually missed the culture of their old job. This all suggests that the power is firmly back in the hands of the employers. Microsoft will make Surface parts available to consumers in 2023. This is good news for those in the right-to-repair movement. The Surface Pro 9 is also easier to repair than its predecessors, according to iFixit. Microsoft hasn't been shy about wanting to improve the repairability of Surface devices, and that now includes the availability of spare parts. In a statement to iFixit, Microsoft says it plans broad availability of parts for individuals and independent repair shops in the first half of 2023. You can also expect complete repair manuals for the Surface Pro 9 by the end of this year. A wider repair network will be available in early 2023 with the help of a major U.S. retailer. That improved stance is reflected in the company's latest designs. Microsoft says repairability was a major focus Surface Pro 9's construction, and iFixit has confirmed as much in its independently run teardown of the Windows tablet. The user-accessible SSD or solid-state drive is just the start. The battery is screwed in rather than glued, and the display is easier to remove when you're digging into the internals. This is the most repairable surface yet, according to iFixit, and a sharp contrast with the notoriously difficult-to-fix builds of the past. As with similar efforts by Apple, Google, Samsung, and others, Microsoft isn't acting strictly out of kindness. The tech industry is facing pressure from federal and state governments to improve repairability, including through right-to-repair legislation that requires access to components, documents, and diagnostics. If Microsoft didn't make the Surface lineup easier to fix on its own, the government might have stepped in. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, I I know we're headed into, for many, it's the winter months, but I know that you had a couple of different things, two, three items that we did not. Power tools. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. 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 So let's let's tackle these. What a. The the, the quickest one uh, is the Ryobi trimmer edger. Uh, we have uh, a lawn that's largely moss, except for areas where weeds thrust up as if part of a science fiction movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and to make it just even more delightful, our uh, driveway is gravel. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, the plants were surrounded largely by uh, rotted out railroad ties. So getting a clean edge on anything was uh, beyond challenging. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, and uh, Judy said, well, why don't you get one of those string trimmers? And I thought, you get it to work for about 10 seconds, and then you're replacing string for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
I, I went to Home Depot. I looked at what they had, and here's my old pals at Ryobi with, in fact, there was a Ryobi factory guy there. Yeah. And I, I, I said, is there an edger, you know, something like a saw blade on a stick where I can cut these things? Sure, yeah. He said, well, our trimmer can do that. Take a look at the head. It rotates. Mm-hmm. I said, and do I have to count on the string? He said, no, because we have these twin plastic blade accessories that'll cut through your stuff. So what I want to say about that okay. real big trimmer etcher, it works on their batteries, it, which I have a million of, and it's fine. I took the string off, put it away, put on their twin plastic cutter blades, which I've had replaced once, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now, uh, it's, um, well, if you want to be a menace to ground clutter, <laughs> okay, yes. This is the way to do it. Meanwhile, I was looking for something for branches. You know, for example, up the side of palm trees, not palm trees, pine trees. There's okay, a difference. Yeah, yeah slight. Which goes, which goes to my aunt. Sometimes <laughs> they, those branches don't start until they're above your head. Sometimes they start below your toes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when they're in your yard, they can block the sunrise and the sunset from making mm-hmm, light hit mm-hmm, you. And that's mm-hmm. a little depressing. So I wanted to be able to cut those branches off without dealing with the saw, without dealing with the chainsaw, without dealing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And my wife said, have you seen QVC and the Sun Joe thing? Well, I knew Sun Joe was a relative to Snow Joe. And decades ago, I had one of the first Snow Joe things, which was the size of a shovel with a little uh, kind of screw mechanism in it. And you could use it for shallow snow to clear your walk. And it was okay. Kind of- All right. So I thought, yeah, I know those guys, and it's pretty good stuff. So I ordered the Sunjo cordless handheld and or long reach pruner lopper. And what we're talking about okay. is a battery-operated tool with what looks like a parrot's beak blade on it. Uh-huh. Okay. And you put that around a branch up to an inch, maybe a little over an inch, and you push the button and that branch is snipped, usually in just one little take, quarter of a second. Wow. Okay. My pine tree got its hair cut in less than <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so what would it, what would it take you normally? You go at it with a, I don't know, a saw or something. You probably a, that, that would have been three hours. Yeah. yeah. So, so what was the, what was what's the price point on that? Oh, I don't even remember because it's this five pay or whatever it is. Okay. Everybody go but, to QVC, but, but, look up Sunjo Pruner. You'll but, find yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm sitting here thinking even even if it's fairly expensive, it pays for itself right away. If, if, if you can yeah, do that absolutely. in five minutes instead of three and, hours. And, and it comes off that extension pole. So if something can be 15 feet above the ground and you can reach it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so. You can also flip it upside down and... and trim the base of mangy shrubs mm-hmm. and i did that i had some shrubs that were impossible to get at the trunk to saw mm-hmm. yeah un- until i took an outside in approach to them and started taking the limbs down they end up looking nice. like scraggly halloween sculptures but then with the chainsaw and i'm done in a minute so. Very nice. I, you know, I, I'm I'm digging that whole idea of that pruner lopper. I, I'm I'm thinking uh, back when I was a kid, uh, we had a, a big, huge avocado tree in our uh, backyard, and uh, yeah, you know who had to take care of that? Me. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. But but we had avocados that were I, I, I can't even find avocados these days that were the size of those avocados. People were amazed. I, I sold them around my neighborhood. <laughs> I had regulars that just loved them. That's delightful. Yeah. And, and, and I, I have to tell you, before I had this thing, what would I use? Bolt cutters. OK. Yeah. And the bolt cutters did not open as wide. And, <laughs> yeah. And bolt cutters on a ladder are a whole other thing. <laughs> Sounds mildly dangerous. Yeah, not, just not, mild. not quite sure, but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, tell you the truth, I take this thing outside and I just <laughs> go at things wholesale. I start with what I can reach. Mm-hmm. Cut those mm-hmm. off. Now I can get at the next layer. Now I can get a little higher. Now, who thought you'd have to use artichoke tactics to get a shrubbery? <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting items. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking uh, this is something for people to uh, like start taking note. We're we're heading into that Christmas gift season. So the yes. the Sunjo pruner and the uh, and the uh, Ryobi uh, trimmer edger. Trimmer edger. Okay, great. Very cool. All righty. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, formerly known as the Westchester PC Users Group, that's WPCUG, will have a presentation, Holiday Tech Gift Ideas, Thursday, December the 1st, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, December 2nd, 2022, at 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. The website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, December 8th at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is nyacc.org. nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has no November meeting this month, but they do have a meeting Thursday, December 8th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is bcug.com. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, December the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, December the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza, West Brooklyn. Call 347-278-7320 for more information. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. 
We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.